The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. You know, I've been hosting this podcast since 2014, and if you're new here, welcome. We've just been over here cross-pollinating topics like intuition, spirituality, animism, feminism, justice, all kinds of justice, truth and reconciliation, the land back movement, eco-justice, disability justice, And we've been talking about collapse, talking about cult dynamics, attachment, trauma healing, polyvagal theory, perimenopause, very cool topics, and often a little ahead of the public discourse. And just so you know, if you want to have these conversations with me live in a really lovely collective container, that's what we're doing over in the Numinous Network. And we've been doing that for about two years. It is just a little bit like a live episode of the podcast in real time. You can learn more about the Numinous Network at CarmenSpaniola.com, but stay tuned to the end of this episode for a special announcement about my annual free week in the Numinous Network. Anyway, all that to say, um, I was thinking about how the last time I had a deep conversation about Mary Magdalene was on this show back in 2014. I hosted a, a conversation with my spiritual mentor, Judy G. I think it was episode like 24. Five or somewhere around there, 26, something like that. I had traveled to France and uh, studied with Julie, Judy in like 2013, right around the time that Mary Magdalene began to press upon me energetically, just felt like it was out of the blue for like at least a year before I went to France. Everywhere I looked, I saw images of the Magdalene, books about her were like jumping off the shelf at me, people would bring it up in conversation. And when I traveled to the south of France, I found myself accidentally traveling to places that are part of the stories of her later life, eventually finding ourselves as me and my husband and our child at Saint-Baume the forest where Mary Magdalene is said to have lived out the end of her life as a hermitess. And there, there's a a cave there and the church is kind of, you know, they, they did what the church does. They kind of like put plaques all over. They say she lived in the cave. I, I, I think that's a bit of spin doctoring. There's like a spring in the cave. I can imagine her going into the cave, particularly at certain times of year, I guess, but you're never going to convince me that an old woman lived in this dark, wet, musty cave when there is an absolutely magical forest just totally protected and serene with like these wild lilies blooming everywhere and very deep soft moss and it's at the base of this huge just enormous rock mountain ridge it's like 3700 feet high it's called Le, the massif de la Saint-Baume and it's just like the best geographic like orientation it's like that forest has like the best like feng shui ever it's so comfortable obviously she lived in the forest anyway as of this month mary magdalene has re-entered the chat 
My guest today, Sophie Strand, is moving the Magdalene story forward in her newest book, The Madonna Secret. If you're a Magdalene buff, you should know that this book is chock full of like enticing little Easter egg hunt, uh, Easter eggs, and it, it synthesizes just a ton of research and a number of theories about Mary Magdalene's actual role as equal partner and wife to Jesus and disciple to the disciples. It's just super juicy. <laughs> it leaves you wanting more. And I'll tell you, a second book would be very welcome. But for now, let's savor in this. Let's connect with the author, Sophie Strand. Sophie, so great to have you on the show. I'm very excited to talk about the Madonna secret. But first, why don't you tell us what identities do you lead with? Herman, it's an honor to be here. You already know this, but I'm a fan of you and of the show. So it's really a delight. Um, I, I lead with three identities. The first is that identity is a bad flotation device and it's better to learn to swim in the meltwater. Um, and that any identity I've grasped onto too hard has become a sinking flotation device. <laughs> um, so I should be ready to give up anything that I solidly think I am. That being said, I self-identify as a lover and as a compost heap. Oh so I'm breaking down always. I'm always trying to make my mistakes soil for someone else to grow something better. Mm. Um, I'm very practically someone with an incurable degenerative disease. So I'm experiencing decay and the fertility of things that are outside of our ideas ideas of wholeness and wellness all the time. Um, I'm also a compost heap of all the elders, animals, books, poems, spiritual practices that I've experienced in my life. Any wisdom I have to give is the wisdom of many other beings all on the same refuse pile. Mm, that's beautiful. I feel warmed by your compost heap already. <laughs> that's great advice. The, yeah, ready to let it go. Okay, so this is a little bit like fangirly, maybe a little bit like, I, I don't know, it feels a little superficial to say, but I want to get this out of the way early. So you posted some beautiful images of first century portraits uh, from Egypt on your Instagram, and they were about, well, they were about a lot of things, but it made me think about the characters in your book, The Madonna Secret. I had very strong associations through your beautiful descriptions of these characters, and I immediately had people leap to mind. And the character of Yeshua, who for folks who are new to this, basically Jesus, right? There's no secret here. This is a story about Jesus and Mary Magdalene, but you're using names of the time and the language. The way you described Yeshua, particularly with his like evidence of a broken nose, I was like, this feels like a young Javier Bardem to me. He was just so kind of like full and yeah, he was fulsome. He was raw. He was a bit rowdy. Um, so just tell me, who should I be thinking of when I'm thinking of Yeshua and um, the other characters, including Miriam? Well, I have to say when you said that, you, I think you wrote it in a comment or you wrote it to me. I was like, that's it. So that's not who I thought of, but I was like, that's better. That's perfect. Like you got it. Absolutely. That's the sensibility. That's the physicality. Absolutely. Um, I do think, you know, I have 
I grew up around writers of fiction and nonfiction. And one of the pieces of advice that was always given is if you're describing someone, draw from real life so it feels real. So if you have a character, have at least like two or three people you're using as composite so that the description is, is alive. And so I would say I had actually someone in mind when I was writing Yeshua very firmly. Um, and it's kind of funny, although I would say it was like a blend. It was like a blend of Dev Patel, <laughs> like older Dev Patel yeah. and this mostly this French actor, Louis Garel. I'm not familiar and with them. What's he in? Louis Garel. Okay, I'm going to IMDb a lot, movies, a lot of French movies, but he is like kind of like the the flattened nose and the wild curly hair and the kind of, he's definitely not like strictly white. And I think that was really important for me is to make people realize that none of these people were white. They were Middle Eastern. Mm -hmm. um, and they were on a continuity with many different ethnicities that had all kind of um, intermarried and intermingled at the that time period in the Roman Empire. So not white, not white pieces with long blonde hair. <laughs> How about Miriam? Any hints there? I had there? a really, really specific actress. Um, Golshifta Far Farhani, I believe is her name. Golshifta Farhani. Um, she's another French act Iranian actress. And she was really, in fact, when I first started writing it, I knew that that was who I saw in my head. Um, yeah. Okay, we're linking to that. I'm going to link to the IMDb's because everybody wants to know. Yeah. Okay, so your descriptions also of the flora and the fauna and the landscape of this region were so vivid and so specific. I found myself being like, okay, when was she there? When did this happen? I was like, now I have to like look up Sophie and kind of like go into her history. Um, so I know a little bit about that, but can you tell us about your experience with that region of the world and your personal connection to those places, those lands? Yeah, thank you. Because I always say that like, if you're going to write about a place, you have to get consent from it. Like if you're going to, you know, if you're going to write about someone in your memoir, maybe you want to, if you love them, maybe you should run it by them. Like same goes for animals and plants and places. Um, I oftentimes say, if you write a poem or a song inspired by a place, go back and sing it and read it to the place and ask it if it's okay. Mm -hmm. um, I was raised in, my uncle married an Israeli woman. And their family very much merged with our family, such that I was raised around Israeli Jews, Holocaust survivors, and a very kind of Israeli culture <laughs> growing mm -hmm. up. Where I asked when I was like four, I said to my mom, I was like, are we Jewish? My mom was like, no, it's complicated. I know those are all the holidays we celebrate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I went and spent a lot of time um, with my extended family in Israel. And actually, um, and wandering all around. And, and of course, they're very environmentally focused, ecologically minded people. So a lot of time out in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say, though, that the really kind of strange pivot point is I got sick in Israel and Palestine, in Jerusalem. And I so I have this degenerative connective tissue disease and it set in overnight when I went to visit Israel for the first time. Wow. And it was a really, I always think it was like a strange thing. It was like, I was stitched into that land by this experience. Like I experienced a complete material shift in my body. It was like, I was one person and then I was another person. I was in the kingdom of the well, and then I was in the kingdom of the unwell and there was never any kind of return. And it all happened within 
the scaffolding of that landscape and that holobiont assemblage of beings. And so there was something about it that really felt like I needed to pay attention to that land, to its inheritance, to the, the waves of empire, the waves of waves of religious experience and oppression. Um, and so I became fascinated. I mean, my parents are scholars and of religion and they study the history of religion, but they were not super interested in Christianity or or they were they were more interested in early Judaism and um and Zen when I was growing up. So it was interesting that I became so focused on that story. Um, yeah, I will say that we do a kind of backforming with places, which is we assume that they looked like they they look like they do now. But the truth is that Israel, Palestine, Galilee, Judea looked very, very different in that time period. And there's a scholar, Michael Haig, who wrote a book about Mary Magdalene, where he really did some great work at looking at the ecological transitions. And the truth is that, you know, the Turkish empire went in and cut down all the trees and created desertification in um, an area that was once as lush as Provence, that, you know, there was a, there's a lot to be said that Galilee was like the closest analog to Galilee at that time period was Provence. Um, and that there would have been much more lushness. There, there's a reason there are lions in the Bible. It's because they were there, these big cats, these incredibly complex ecosystems. So I also wanted to, you know, we're, the book is looking at a people who are oppressed and erased, but I'm also looking at ecologies that have been erased by empire, by successions of empire and genocide. Mm. Wow, that is fascinating to know. And and also when you're saying you were you were in the kingdom of the well and then suddenly in the kingdom of the unwell, when you went to Jerusalem, it's like so ironic because it's like the opposite of a miracle, depending yeah. on how you look at disability. So given your experience with illness and disability, mm -hmm. how was it for you writing this book, which is so much about you, you are talking about miracles that are biblical stories and you're putting them into a context and explaining them but they're still they're very miraculous and um anyone who has experience with healing either themselves as feeling healing energy coming through or has experienced that kind of miraculous healing it really comes alive particularly that piece between Yeshua and Miriam so so I just want to sort of start by saying, okay, so given that you experienced a, like an unmiracle or something, you experienced something very supernatural almost, um, what were some of the considerations you had writing about miracles as a person living with disability and chronic illness? That's like one of the best questions I've gotten, um, because that's really the the, the driver in, in the, the urgency of the story for me. So when I first got ill, I had many misdiagnoses, medically gaslit, malpractice, medical rape, just, you know, series of like, I'm writing a book about that now, just, you know, young women with mysterious ailments in the medical system is, a you know, a snapshot of all the worst parts of our culture. And, um, it was intense. And I, I went in with the naive 
idea that I was going to get better, that there was going to be a pill, that the people, the adults were going to come in and, and, and they were going to fix me. And it turns out no one's in charge and no one has an answer. And um, in fact, people have bad answers. And I think that I became really interested when I realized that I wasn't going to get a quick diagnosis or pill or fix. And especially when I finally received a diagnosis of incurability and knowing that I had perhaps a greatly abbreviated life. I started to get really interested in placebos, the immune system, and miracle mind. And what I was very interested in is I studied with scholar Bruce Chilton, who is a um, he's a historian and a theologian who is incredibly well versed in Second Temple period Palestine and in um, uh, healing and healing traditions, miracle workers, the history of miracle workers. And the truth is that for most of human history, medicine healing was theater. And we now know that theater is actually the most important part of medicine, that if you don't have faith in a doctor, even a drug he gives you that could work will work less well. But if you have faith in him, if he puts hands on you and makes eye contact, you could have an even better reaction to a placebo, to something that's not even a medicine. And so most of medicine is about a belief sphere. So if you live in a belief sphere where you believe that ancestors are involved, the environment is there, the moon is in the right place, you actually activate your own immunological vitality such that you have a better response, a better ability to heal yourself. But the issue for me is we live in such a shuttered, anthropocentric, sterilized worldview that we aren't available to a miracle mind, to a belief sphere that would actually buttress our immune systems, that we could add it into like very real medical interventions that we need, and then the both would act synergistically. So I was really interested personally in like, what would it take to open myself up to a miracle mind, to a belief sphere where I allowed healing to come in that was outside of my epistemological framework? And so I studied the history of miracle workers in the Mediterranean. Before I ever got hyper-focused on Jesus, a lot of people think Jesus was like a, an aberrant figure. But the truth is there was Honey the Circle Drawer. There was Hanina Bendoza. There were so many different people who were bringing people back to life, spitting in their eyes, putting hands on healing. And people were having real responses. I mean, we have to we have to really get more humble about how we look at these things. If you have hundreds of accounts of people experiencing miracles, you're having real medical events. People are activating their immune systems. We know this with trauma too, which is we know that traumatic responses get entangled in the body. And if you can create a theatrical therapeutic event that helps people untangle those things, you get medical benefit. And so I really wanted to approach looking at Jesus from kind of a selfish perspective, which is I was like, what does it mean to heal people and to receive healing? Um, I don't necessarily think, I think at this point in my life, I don't look at getting sick as being a curse or an illness or, or a hex, but it definitely was, it changed the course of my life. And I don't think I would have ordered any of this off the menu, but it's placed me exactly where I need to be. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about, you know, having watched like John of God on Oprah as a, as a young person and then seeing documentaries now, but I'm like, but they're still getting cut. And, and as a hypnotherapist myself who did um, hypnotherapy for anesthesia so that people wouldn't need anesthesia when they went for their dental appointments and things like I have seen this work people have, and, and there's a huge amount of faith, but 
your, your depiction of Yeshua and like sometimes flashes of anger or rebelliousness or just like meanness to his mom and stuff like that. It just is like, yeah, okay. So had he lived, what would be the difference between Jesus and John of God? And I think that brings us to Miriam. So there's just like an absolutely like it's so sexy the, the the relationship and like the conversation between their bodies when he is healing or when she is healing and how it sort of it it just feels like this life force energy comes from the ground up when when they're in proximity it's just really amazing so um tell me a bit more about how you wrote this like romance novel about her and held her so strongly there even as she's you know she she is still dealing with patriarchy and diminishment and erasure oh yeah I mean I so I was given the strange gift of entering into the Jesus story from a very different door than most people enter into it I did not enter through Christian upbringing I didn't enter through being harmed directly by Christianity like many people are. I entered through a kind of slant Jewish perspective and through my parents' kind of historical inquiry. Um, and I also entered it most importantly as the child of two storytellers who told me to look at stories with curiosity and cynicism and to ask who had told them, why they worked, how they've been changed to benefit certain populations. And for me, my favorite stories are love stories. And so I always looked at the Jesus story as in confusion as a storyteller and as a young child. And I thought, huh, like this seems like a love story. It also seems like a tragedy. It seems like it's being told in some weird way. Like what's going on here? So of course, when I learned about Mary Magdalene and learned about the fact that no Jewish teacher would have been taken seriously without having a wife, and that someone as powerful as that must have had a very powerful partner. I started to imagine, you know, the 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 part of the Bible that's missing. I mean, the part of the New Testament that's missing is 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 eros embodiment and the feminine, and also the fact that we cannot live without our bodies. And so I wanted to body the scripture again and to body it through a love story. I wanted to make it back into a love story and not into a kind of hero's journey death march um and so it was really important to me to make it a true romance and, and a complicated romance you know we make we screw up you know shakespearean, shakespearean romances are interesting because people make so many different mistakes and so i really wanted to show in this book that you know things go wrong at so many different points in a relationship and if you look back you can see all of the ways you could have slowed down and had a conversation and changed the course of events so but I also wanted to really try and to imagine these people as being human, as having human foibles, having pride, having um, complexity. Um, and I wanted to gift them back their nuance, their ability to make mistakes. I also really appreciated how you filled out Joseph. Oh, <laughs> and that was like, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to give things away. Maybe even saying that does, but I, 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 I really appreciate that, that people were very full and, you know, complex. Um, I also find it fascinating, though, that you do seem to know so much about scripture. And so, 
and, and there's also, I just want to say for listeners, there's like, if you are a person who liked, um, Anita Diamond's red tent in the nineties, this is going to be like, how would we write something like that today? This is that book. It's so exciting because there's, I think more historically potentially accurate, or just like the way you are restoring ecosystems and, um, uh, you know, there's Easter eggs in there too, from the Nag Hammadi scrolls and the gospel of Thomas. I noticed, you know, you have Miriam speaking basically the thunder perfect mind and different things. So I'm like, (laughs) how did you, how did you learn so much scripture? Well, so I was raised around, I was raised at a dining room table with rabbis, theologians, nuns, Theravadan Buddhist monks reading scripture. So my dad did something when I was younger, which is, so he was an ex-Buddhist monk and he did something called koans of the Bible. So every week, people from many different faiths would come and discuss parts of the Bible, but with their own spiritual framework. And so I grew up hearing the stories of the Bible. I heard them all the time. And so I, and also I grew up in a house that was a compost heap of every different spiritual tradition, every document. And you know, my parents did become obsessed with the Black Madonna and with how the Divine Feminine and the history of that had been um, obscured post the Bronze Age collapse. So I was inundated in this as as I was growing up. And then I began to focus myself. Um, The important thing for me was I was raised loving, you know, the Red Tent and loving in particular Mary Stewart and Mary Renault, in particular Mary Renault who went in as a serious classicist, as a lover, amateur, who then became like a serious academic and became honestly like the premier scholar of Alexander the Great and Greek life, and then wrote all of these incredibly historically accurate, but also emotionally complex stories about that time period. And for me, what I love about historical fiction is when it makes use of the primary documents, makes use of the texture, the ecology, and it fleshes out a world. It doesn't like channel and use it as an excuse to be a ventriloquist for your own modern perspective. It really attempts to rebuild the world that could have been. And in a lot of Magdalene fiction that I read, because I wanted to read more about her, I was worried about the liberties that were taken and how people were not using all of this rich inheritance of Jewish tradition and and targums and storytelling. And they were often erasing her Jewishness and making her red haired and doing weird acrobatics to try and make her into a sex priestess and a white person. And I was really worried about that. And I thought, hmm, there's so much rich information there. Um, So I studied it in college. I studied with scholars um, of the Jesus seminar. I, you know, I've, I've watched thousands of lectures that no one else wants to watch about the purity of vessels, you know, at the Qumran um, plateau. Um, so I, this is just kind of my, my, my love, you know, I, I identify as a lover at the beginning and you don't write something like this unless you really love it from the bottom up. And I love research and I love taking that research and using it to build a world. Mm. Well, it really, really shows. Absolutely. I, I, I'm one of those people who my Magdalenian, that's not a word, but 
is it? <laughs> yeah, anyway, it sure. <laughs> that, that, it's also, it's um, also a geological epoch, the Magdalenian era, right? Or like it's an era of tool making. It's a strange thing, Amazing. Right? Oh, I love it. Okay, so that journey that really kind of was catapulted for me when I read Cynthia Bourgeau's book, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene. And this was the first research that I was like, oh my God, yes. And I, I never knew why I was attracted to Mary Magdalene. I'm not Christian at all. I was not raised, I was totally raised in a secular household, but I've always had a highly developed spiritual yearning that where I would always ask friends when they would want to do like sleepovers on a Friday, if they were Christian, I'd be like, could we do it on Saturday? Cause then I'd want to go to church on Sunday. I'd be like, I want to go see what y'all are doing in there. You know, I was always fascinated. And I went to like Presbyterian summer camp with them and got saved in the middle of the night. And I went to like Catholic Sunday school so I could see what was going on, you know? So I, but why Mary Magdalene for me, I didn't really know. Then she wrote that book. And then we went to Provence uh, for uh, our honeymoon, but I was actually going to meet with my intuitive teacher. And well, I shouldn't say actually, in addition to being on honeymoon, <laughs> we went to uh, France for a month and I was working with my intuition development teacher. And she also, who, you know, she was a couple decades older than me. So she had this like wonderful, mm, not crone, but like wonderful matron, strong energy. And she had been a, an, an acolyte of Mary Magdalene for a long time and was like asking me, why did you guys go to that village? Why did you go there? Why did you go there? And she finally said, do you know that you're following Mary Magdalene? <laughs> and so that yearning for contact with the land that she was on and where she may have been, I, it makes me curious since this book, The Madonna Secret, ends while she's still in the Swana region. Is there something <laughs> coming down the pike where we get to hear her story uh, in Provence? Do you believe that she went there? Do you, what are your thoughts on like, if there were a part two, where would you be taking us? Such a great, I'm also jealous that you got to go there. I've so wanted to go to all of those places to St. Baum. That's how you say it, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, St. Baum. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to pilgrimage. Hopefully I will. Um, I will, I do set the frame narrative that she is in France. She's in Gaul. Um, so she ends oh, that's up that's right of course yeah. I forgot at the very beginning so she ends up in France and that's where her life ends I do I don't believe you have folklore and spiritual practices that densely concentrated without some initial germ some real mm -hmm. seed I think it's highly likely she ended up in France um, I think I, I don't ever want to say I'm 100% certain about anything, but my personal sense is, and that's why I wrote it in the book, is I believe that, you know, also there were so many, Jerusalem was burned, Palestine was destroyed, there were genocidal revolts against the Jews later in time in Egypt, there was a brief moment in time where it was safe to be a Jew in Alexandria, and then in the late um, first century, there were all of these massacres. So it also makes sense practically that if you were alive and you were Jewish, you needed to escape somewhere. Um, and honestly, France makes sense. And the fact that there's such a devotion to Marian traditions, to the divine feminine and to the Magdalene in France since the first century, since even before the canonical gospels, we have Mary Magdalene in France. And this, in this dense belief 
that she went there. So I personally believe that that's where, I don't know where her bones rest. I don't know if her bones rest there or still exist, but I also know that it doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what people believe, what, you know, like, you know, the, 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 Present is interactive with the past. So this belief that she ended up in France is powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that going to those places, you do meet her, you do feel her. Um, yeah, and I, I'm i very interested personally and a kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, detective way about her relationship with the Cathars and the, the massacre of the Cathars and that, you know, the early tradition of the troubadours and the romance tradition. So I was obsessed with the Arthurian legends. So the early Arthurian legends, the romantic stories, the tradition of love poetry all begins in the Cathars who are massacred by the church because they had egalitarian situations, they celebrated homosexuality maybe, they told stories, and probably because they believed that the Magdalene was not just the partner of Christ, but perhaps his equal. Mm -hmm. It's amazing you bring that up because that was, I'd had this very odd experience when I was at Montségur, which is where- Oh, oh my gosh. Yes, so this is where the Cathars were um, genocidally killed uh but after you know something like 200 days of trying to hold out uh, at the top of this mountain so what had happened it's a very small place with one way in and one way out and i was there with my husband and our child at the time was uh eight or ten years old and i had gone in and was suddenly feeling very nauseous and i've realized since that every time i hit a place of um deep trauma and and sort of like very significant historical reference at least maybe for me I get very ill just like yeah. very physically ill and you know you chalk it up to like maybe it's sunstroke even though it's a cloudy day maybe I need more water or something but I was like very dizzy I'd never experienced anything like this and I said well I'm just gonna sit down here for a moment you all go walk and um, I'll be right here. And I was right there by that one entrance in, one entrance out. And a Frenchman was giving a tour and I was listening to it. And I could tell he was talking about these, you know, the history of this place, which we were just driving down the road. I saw it and said, we should go in there. Anyway, so I get up and I'm like, gosh, it's been like an hour and a half. Where are my people? And so I sat there a little longer. I sat there for two hours at that one entrance. Then I went walking. I, I walked the path. I went everywhere. I could not find them. And it's quite a steep hill down. And I was like, gosh, am I going to walk all the way to the parking lot? Anyway, by the so I did. I walked down and they're sitting there totally distressed going, where were you? We have been waiting for you for like two and a half hours. And I was like, I swear to God, I didn't get up. I was just sitting there. They were like, no, we, we like walked the path, we came back, you were gone. And I was like, I was sitting right there. So there was this like very bizarre invisibility thing that happened where I, we, we still can't explain it. Like what happened? I just got sucked into a vortex for like two and a half hours at Monsignor. I was sharing this with my teacher and she was like, wow, yeah. Why did you go there? Why did you go here? And it, it, it really... Anyway, it set me on that. Um, it kind of brings me back actually to miracles. So you have actually experienced miraculous like experiences or, or 
interfaced with the supernatural in many different ways. And you've talked about your parents a few times and anybody who has read the, the way of the rose or has listened to the audiobook has heard your voice as the lady heard your parents' experience of reclaiming a pre-Christian rosary tradition. And in it, your mother talks about her anxieties around your illness and also shares some, I would say, supernatural synchronicities that helped her feel as though spirit or the lady, Mary Magdalene, someone was trying to say, Sophie's going to be okay. <laughs> so do you want to share anything about those kinds of supernatural experiences or like little mini miracles, little winks that make you feel like maybe Mary Magdalene or someone else, something else has been um, willing you forward with this story? Mm, yeah, I will say that I always want to flip the idea of the supernatural and say that magic is the most natural thing of all. And well that our our idea that these things can't happen is supernatural that we're the only supernatural element truly you know mm -hmm. Tolkien says this in one of my favorite essays which is called on fairy stories which is like it's a, a true miracle is the most natural thing it's not a god from the sky it's it's that joint slipping back into place. It's the golden eagles coming from the actual Middle Earth to actually save um, Frodo and Sam. And so for me, I'm really interested in those moments where I feel like, yeah, I don't have the full understanding of how this is possible. My science, you know, doesn't make sense of this, but it feels utterly correct. Um, I, I will say that I think The Way of the Rose was written a long time ago by my parents and I can't really speak to their experience of my illness. I know that I've gotten much sicker since then. I think they're probably much more afraid. Mm -hmm. I think I, I'm always looking for a framework that's more morally robust than what we are given within human culture. Mm -hmm. Cause I've known things that have happened that I don't understand. I don't understand how they're there and I can't make sense of them. What I do know is that there the world is flush with aliveness that is that is that I want to participate in and when I when I'm moving in the right direction it comes to meet me mm -hmm. um and I think it usually comes to meet me in the form of animal encounters some kind of synchronicity with animals um and for me I think a great example is at the start of quarantine I was very I'd had a miscarriage and my long-term partnership had ended I was very sick. I was quarantining alone and I felt very scared and not held. I'm not sure if I was moving in the right direction. Madonna's secret was also getting rejected multiple times. So I actually was asking my Magdalene, when I pray to the Magdalene, I, I pray to the Magdalene as being a portal to the animate everything. For me, mm -hmm. she's really like, she is the altar where the vultures and the leopards and the spikenard and the roses all exist. She's an ecosystem. So I was like praying to her as ecosystem and saying, was this correct? I spent all this hard one time researching and writing this book, but it's getting rejected. And I feel like my life is melting. And I was praying to her pretty hard. And all of a sudden I had a couple of things happen. One, I started to walk outside and I'd look up and there'd be a feather falling from a bird and I would hold out my hand without speeding up or slowing down and it would fall into my hand and so eventually I was like this is a lesson in timing 
it's saying that like you're moving you don't need to slow down or speed up you're moving even though there are no external validations that you're on time and all of them say that you're late or like you're not on time you're on time so the feathers were happening and then at the peak of that experience because it didn't last forever it was like a pocket of time i was walking down overlook mountain which is this big um big mountain over where i live with these ruins at the top of this hotel that was burned down and lots of rattlesnakes and i've been hiking up and down it every day and i was hiking down it i was out of service i was two hours from the bottom and then probably like an hour from a hospital at the bottom <laughs> and i was walking and something made me turn and pause and look back. I was literally like, I was like running down the mountain pretty much. I like was pausing on one foot and I heard a rattle and out of the undergrowth had streamed an eight foot rattler. Like I'd heard of these and I thought it was made up. It turns out the big ones are the, are the are mamas. The big rattlers are the females. And I'd heard of her. I thought it was all made up. It was not. And she, if I had kept stepping, I would have stepped exactly on her and been bit. And something, some strange little gust of wind made me pause, look back on this one foot. And she circled me three times. And as she was doing it, I was thinking in my head, I was doing the like mental arithmetic of being like, takes two hours for the poison to kill you. Like, I was just really trying to like, think about like how if I, I'm going to get bit because she was rattling. She was like high alert. And then she went off into the undergrowth. And I thought, oh, this whole month of catching feathers has primed me to be inside a temporality that is not the culture's temporality, but is saving my life. And so I have to trust that even if I feel sick, even if I feel like I'm late or if I'm off kilter, I'm exactly on time. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Sophie, thank you for sharing that. That's you know, I can feel reassured about timing, hearing, hearing that you had that experience. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing your, your miracles with everyone. Sharing the rattlesnake. I mean, she was like, uh, she was the mother of the mountain. She was the Magdalene. And of course, you know, the divine feminine has always been related to snakes who press their whole shivering kinetic life force against the earth. Um, you know, of course, patriarchy is demonized snakes because they're related to the goddess so for me snakes are always a, a magdalenian wink exactly and i would be remiss if i didn't ask you a bit more about patriarchy because your other book the flowering wand came out just a year before this one and um is kind of like I think of it as background uh, material or contextual piece for Yeshua and all the other characters. Oh my gosh, all the disciples. But I want to read, um, because patriarchy is just, you know, it's it's rampant in the book as it is everywhere. There was one very arresting piece um, that I would like to read for folks. This is chapter 12. It opens this way. Marta became pregnant almost immediately. Amos had been violent but the promise of a son had stayed his hand. I have enough distance now to understand that man better. His violence was a desperate effort at ritual. When he hit Marta, he was doing the same thing that his father and grandfathers had done. He was communing with his ancestors. 
I had to take some breaths after <laughs> that opening and like, oh, here we go. It, it, so what, what were you trying to say about patriarchy with this book? Oh, what was I trying? Many, many, many things. But I think I was trying to make sure that patriarchy didn't get its villain, that it's not a villain. It's a paradigm where everyone loses, mm -hmm. including the people who are look like they're perpetrating it, that, that the men inside of it are also losing and have been given a very limited toolbox. And for me, what I was really interested in is in the apps, in a secular, in an increasingly secular culture, or in an increasingly traumatized culture that's been su subjected to dislocation, exile, oppression of many different varieties, all of a sudden you don't have rituals. You don't have a way of communing with your cultural inheritance, your ancestry, your lineage. The only thing you have is trauma. And so the way you commune with your ancestors is by reenacting the trauma. And, and that, I mean, I think, I think about addiction as being like that too. Like, you know, we inherit addictions that, you know, we drink, we, we, we do drugs as this way of, you know, communing with those who came before us who did the same thing. And it becomes, you know, the, the issue is these, these things become sedimented and more intense over time. I oftentimes think of, you know, I think about disassociation, you know, mind, matter, spirit, body. I, I think about that disassociation as being initially a survival mechanism for the people surviving the Bronze Age collapse. So they knew climatological pressures, natural disasters, the fall of empires, genocides, exile, really intense bodily trauma and um, dislocation. And so one of the ways of surviving that is to ascend into Gnosticism, into a kind of hermetic tradition that says that the mind, the spirit, the platonic ideas are a safer place in the real world. But the issue is survival mechanisms over time become obsolete. And then, of course, they become violent. And so I also think of like our survival mechanisms are a way of making our way through certain kinds of violent bottlenecks when we transmit them generation to generation, become more and more poorly matched to our actual circumstances. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So as we're kind of meeting the other edge of the bowl, the other end of the arc of our conversation, I, I would like to ask a little bit more about your connection with Miriam. You, you know, you mentioned your parents and I'm curious how much of their, of you is there, how much of you is there in Miriam listening to her father teach his students and longing to be among them? Because, you know, so yeah, you have these two exceptionally gifted uh, intellectuals as parents. What was it like at the Finn Strand dinner table? <laughs> and, and what were you trying to say about parent-child relationships mm. in the Madonna secret? It's a great question. So there's more of me and Miriam than any other character I've ever written. So I wrote, I wrote fiction books before. I've written other things after I'm working on a new project. And I think that Miriam is very close to me, but in a lot of ways, Miriam is actually, I gifted Miriam a safer childhood than my own. Hmm. And it was a way of healing my own. I experienced before the age of three, terribly intense violence that my parents 
were not responsible for but happened and then they had to be there after the fact mm. and in a certain way I gave Miriam a charm childhood I didn't have mm. <laughs> and she, she's she experiences things that are much worse than what I've experienced but in a certain way we had a a, a lichenization where I gave her things I didn't have she gave me things I didn't have um and but one thing that is very similar is that experience I did draw from life when I was trying to think about her upbringing which is my dad and parent and my, my mom would invite all of these intellectuals and spiritual scholars and people over to the house and they'd invite me to the table um and I was I was treated like an adult I mean that kind of that also he puts kids at risk when when they're treated like adults but it it gives them, you know, especially for girls within a culture that says that our voices don't matter. It was an incredibly valuable gift that they said, your voice and your questions matter. You can talk to adults, you can dialogue spiritually. So I'm, I'm the product of that generosity and that culture. Um, I would say though, that the thing that I think most interesting and is most similar between me and Miriam is a desire to prove yourself in a culture that doesn't want you. So the desire to enter into male academia, to high esteem, to a kind of intellectualism that doesn't actually want you and getting there, shaping yourself down, neutering yourself, changing yourself to fit in there, realizing that it doesn't care if you live or die. And so that was a really big thing for me was thinking about, I would say the closest analog is actually my experience in academia, which is like I could neuter myself and bet self-betray and really do well within that world but it was not good for me and it was not good for my sisters or my or any of my actual um like feminine counterparts mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what do you hope is Miriam's legacy you this book is going to clearly be a piece uh, you know like another footstone on the path of people's understanding or their at least their relationship to her where do you hope the culture perhaps um, moves to in, I don't know, let's say five or 10 or even more years from now? Oh, man. I mean, practically, I think we live in an antibiotic culture that says when something is bad, you throw it out or you kill it off. Antibiotic, anti-life. And I always say I'm not antibiotic. I'm not, I don't work by subtraction. I work by addition, by composting. And I think that there are a lot of stories, cultural paradigms, spiritual and religious traditions that we could very easily call toxic and throw out. And I think that I'm much more interested in going in and composting them and really trying to see the ways in which they were mistranslated, co-opted. Um, and so I hope that if this book inspires anything artistically, creatively, intellectually, it's that other people within their own paradigms begin that composting process. You know, I was inspired by the Red Tent. Um, I was inspired by other feminist um, traditions of going into these stories and taking responsibility for them. And so I hope that other people do that work from their own, um, you know, strengths and perspectives. But in a bigger, wilder way, I, I want us to come back to the body, to the arrows and to the frailty and the humility of our condition. We cannot fix, you know, I think the thing is we cannot 
fix our way out of what we've created. That the way we fix is also the way we make problems. That we need to slow down. And one of the main sins of this of this story is the sin of speed, moving too fast. And I think right now we are accelerating into a kind of techno solutionism that I think is going to make things even worse for us. So I hope I hope if there's any small little thing that comes out of it, it's that we should slow down and go back to the river. We should go and ask for advice from beings that are not humans um, about how to how best to place our feet on the land right now. Mm-hmm. I, well, I read this book at a in a moment where I really needed multiple voices, human and non-human, um, from the page, from the birds, from the creek, saying slow down come back maybe also because I read it during Venus retrograde it was like "Mm, I might need to like go back and like revision some ideas I used to have about that life going down slowing down doing less and um and in a way it's a funny phrase to use given what you said that was so useful about um supernatural but it's like in a way I have to give up my magical thinking that there is going to be something in this world of capitalism that it's like, I will somehow be able to keep moving forward and doing more and more. And it's like, actually, I just need to go to this land that I am resisting and I have to nurture it. And I have to be like a soil farmer (laughs) and not a famous author or not a whatever, just for me. And, And so this came at a perfect time for me to hear that, that we need to slow down. And as a trauma-informed therapeutic practitioner every time I would hear Miriam in the book say like I just want to go back to the river I was like yes everyone just slow down (laughs) yeah and that's the thing is like you write I'm sure you've had this experience We, we write or say or teach or gift something that we need ourselves and so I need that I mean, I, I I've been in like a publicity whirlwind and of course I'm hearing you give me back Miriam's words and I'm thinking to myself yeah I don't I need to step to the side you know you don't and I think that's the big the big thing is that it's anti-messianic and that and when I say that I mean it's anti-hero's journey like you do not want to be the one person in charge of saving everything because most likely you'll fail (laughs) yeah exactly so okay so given that given that there's some release and some slowing down and it's so hard to do in this accelerating culture. Um, I think even as people, I, you know, from what I gather and from what I read of both yours and your parents, you're very collapse oriented or collapse aware people. And so it's like, yeah, okay, we get it. This isn't like any big surprise. (laughs) This is collapsing and like, we do need to slow down. And yet, and yet there's, there's grief, there's anger, there's like denial, so how do you personally cope with the grief and the rage and mourning, regret that this is how it is? I have lately been thinking that the types of grief and bodily anguish we are experiencing as, you know, species go extinct. I think of the kawaii bird in Hawaii singing that song you can look up on YouTube to a mate that will never come because it's the last of its species. These frayed love songs, these, these, you know, they're, they're endlings. There are beings that are singing out love songs and there's no one, there's, there's no one left in their species to come. And I think about that pain and it's too big for a singular human body. 
What I do is I go to places that are big enough to hold weather systems that I would destroy me if I tried to individually manage them. And I, you know, there's, there's a reservoir near me, there's a lake, there's a mountain that I go to when I'm feeling like my circuits are fried with the immensity of this anger and this grief. I mean, so that on the one hand, I, and then I think, how can I be an ecosystem for other beings grief? So if, the, if I'm being held by a bigger body, I can also begin to think about responsibly how I could be a body where other beings can feel safe enough to decompensate and to relax. And I think about that in terms of like the bunnies in my backyard, the plants, how can I make life a little bit easier for them? The butterflies, the bees, the bees who are like demented by all the pesticides. Like how can I make my space, my home, a place where these beings can feel like, ah, oh, it's not safe everywhere, but at least here today, this is a resting stop. Mm -hmm. The other side is that I think anger especially for people who are femme identifying or so on some way, like non-male identifying part of the spectrum. I think that anger is a superpower. I think we're told oftentimes to feel sorrow when the truth is that anger is like, it goes back to the uses of erotic by Audre Lorde, which is when we realize that there's the potential to feel better, to feel more, to feel sexier, we demand more and we take less shit. Sorry, we take less violence and less bad behavior. So anger is optimistic. So I think I go between needing to be held to let grief move through me like a weather system and then tapping into the ways in which my anger can be a rope out of certain situations that it says, I won't accept this. I won't accept this behavior. I won't accept that treatment of that person. I will fight for something I care about. So anger for me is a way of, of deciding what I want to defend. Absolutely. We love a good old collaborative rage here <laughs> at the Numinous yeah. Podcast. I actually just saw a meme that was like one of those ones that's two texts, a text conversation. And someone is saying, when did you become such a bitch? And the other response is, as soon as I knew it was an option. <laughs> yeah <laughs> right as soon as we can mobilize enough to be like yeah no this is a full body no for me I I always think that's a really good sign for someone and I and I want to help create channels for that yeah I love that well Sophie this has been just an all-star stellar love it uh conversation one for the ages and I cannot wait to talk about this book with people. I cannot wait to, you know, see the, surely there will be discussion groups and book clubs and all kinds of things wanting to explore the themes in the book. And I wish you all the best of luck with it. it it's one for the ages for sure. Thank you so much for sharing it today. Carmen, that is so generous. Thank you so much. Your response to it early on was really validating it's so scary putting out work and it was just this moment where I was like okay yeah I can exhale so thank you so much for everything oh, my pleasure it's really good yeah it's really 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 good my friends you should get this book you will find all the links that I could find in the show notes at numinouspodcast.com uh, or just whatever podcast player you're in and you'll find my links to IMDB <laughs> and maybe I'll put some photos of young Javier Bardem. 
Reviews mean so much to an author because they help boost the SEO and they connect the book with its perfect audience. So as soon as you've read The Madonna Secret, please go to Amazon and write your review, even though we hate Amazon. Do it for the author whose work you love. I am deeply grateful to Megan. This is uh, the listener shout out this week is to Megan who wrote a review of my book, The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year on Amazon. Megan wrote, The Spirited Kitchen is a treasure. I am new to the Wheel of the Year and folk magic, and this book feels like a beautiful, warm welcome to this world. Due to my current health and life challenges, I've not yet made any of the recipes from this book, but I pull it out every holiday as an act of self-care. Okay, I'm a little choked up here. Um, I read Carmen's lovely descriptions of the upcoming holiday and enjoy the stunning photos of her ritual practices and recipes. Even this small act feels like a delicious and soothing ritual for me. Reading The Spirited Kitchen makes me feel like I have a kind, wise auntie who will teach me how to make magic in my everyday life with intention and by savoring the process. Hmm. That is so heartwarming. It's so touching. It's exactly why I wrote this book, Megan. So thank you. And you don't have to do any of the recipes. Exactly what you're doing is like using it like a grimoire. That is perfect. You are using it exactly as I would hope. That kind of review obviously is so valuable, um, especially now as we enter the fall retail season. The last months of the year are the biggest, most important months uh, for book retail. But I want you to not compare yourself to Megan, who's obviously like very beautifully articulate. Please don't let a loss of words be a barrier to writing a review. Don't be like, oh my gosh, I love this book so much that so I have to write a review that is equal to it. No, please don't. You can literally just give it five stars and say, loved it. <laughs> like done is better than not, right? And done is better than great. And just that five stars and loved it <laughs> will make a huge difference, a massive difference in terms of who can find my book on Amazon this retail season. Okay. Here's the big announcement about the Numinous Network. Free week is happening this year from September 17th to 23rd. 17th to 23rd. So the network opened in May 2020 and we've supported nearly 800 people since then with our events and classes and courses. And the calendar is built around somatics classes three times a week. And these somatics classes, it's like gentle movement, embodiment. It's a nervous system workout. It's just a gentle autonomic nervous system workout, or you could think of it as like a vagus nerve uh, workout, if you like vagus nerve. So these workouts are to calm and soothe the nervous system with gentle therapeutic movements. It's like exercise, but no cardio, no strength training, no resistance training, no high intensity. Those things are all great for other things, but here in the network, it's all low intensity, where less is more, slower is better. We're always remembering that even if you choose to stop a practice, you're still doing the practice. Because the main goal is to establish the right pace for you, the right exertion and effort for you. And saying no to doing more can be helpful to establish secure attachment with yourself and with your body. 
to trust your own knowing, and then your body trusts your brain to make good choices. So every time you pause or stop, it's like your body thanks you. And in our network, you are always celebrated for not pushing through signs of distress or discomfort or even just disinterest. And that's one of our main practices is that we are uncoupling our nervous system from the pressures of capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy, which conditions us to push beyond our body's capacities and to push through the signals of distress and fatigue. So we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> Instead, we're stopping even before we feel the need to stop. We're supported to do that. We're celebrated for it. It's like we're not really trying to improve even. We're trying to attune. And if we attune more and more consistently, sometimes improvement in well-being flows from that. Anyway, that's like me kind of going off on a tangent about the philosophy, but the main void here is foundational to the calendar are our drop-in somatic sessions, which include therapeutic tremoring, if you've heard of that. If you haven't, maybe come and check it out. Um, and then we also have monthly gatherings. Um, we do things like peer supervision, which is for other therapeutic practitioners or people in helping um, uh, professions. You could be a therapist, a social worker, a midwife, doula, astrologer, tarot reader. We have lots of massage therapists. So it's peer supervision for those of us who are trying to dismantle capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy while still surviving within it keeping the lights on a roof over our heads. Um, and then we have a small business chat, which is the same format, but it's for folks who aren't necessarily in therapeutic positions. So more like you could be a marketer, you could be um, you know, a food manufacturer, you could be really anything. Um, so we have gatherings for that. We also have our perimeno jam. So if you're perimenopausal or menopausal, let's come chat about it. Lots of witnessing and information sharing about that. We also have monthly attachment jams. You can bring your current troubling situation about any kind of attachment dilemma, and I will give you one-on-one um, -on -one attention in a group setting for that. We have polyvagal meditation with Annie Bray. Um, we have monthly sensitive systems and long COVID connection calls. So if you are a person who has... Um, you know, any kind of autoimmune disorder, if you have long COVID, whether you have a formal diagnosis or not, if you're looking for people who like really get it and are totally here for witnessing information and commiseration, <laughs> we have that. We also have monthly attention on grief with the contemplative grief practice with Taryn A. Airfan and with our grief vigils. It's also where my book, The Spirited Kitchen, comes alive. So we have seasonal celebrations for the Wheel of the Year. Um, and you'll find we use many of the book's concepts as a jumping off point to go beyond the pages into a more direct personal experience of spiritual connection to the earth and the more than human. So during Free Week, you'll be able to peek into all of this and the archive and watch all the classes we've done on like ancestral veneration, astral magic, connecting with plants, and more. So how do you get to try the Numinous Network for one week free? Pretty simple. You sign up for my newsletter at carmenspaniola.com. On September 17th, I will email you the link to join. 
You will need a credit card to join this space because it's hosted on Mighty Networks and your credit card will be charged to start a monthly subscription if you don't cancel at least 24 hours before the end of the trial. So you get seven days free from whatever day you sign up, but you'll need to cancel by day six so you don't get charged for the next month. And that's not me, that's just how Mighty Networks works. And it's totally fine if you just try it free for a week and then cancel because whatever, maybe it doesn't interest you after all. Maybe your schedule is tight this fall. Whatever reason, doesn't matter. You will receive no high pressure sales tactics from us whatsoever. In fact, many, many, many of our 800 members in the past two years have come and gone according to their availability. A huge percentage of people will sign back on in December, for instance, because we really celebrate that month of Yuletide and we like to do preparations and festivities together. It's like a really big deal in the Nimbus Network. Um, but although people do come and go, I will say like a pretty large percentage of people who sign up for free week stay for the fall and winter season. In fact, right now, 40% of our membership has been with us for over a year and most of them signed up for a free week. 24% of our members have been with us for 18 months or more, and 14% have been here for two years, having joined initially in a free week. So it's really big, like a large percentage of our members say that the network has been a critical part of their recovery. And sometimes that recovery is from like a physical setback, like COVID or long-term illness that evades treatment, things like fibromyalgia, Hashimoto's, mast cell activation syndrome, um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, uh, also known as ME-CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome, um, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, PCOS, um, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, these kinds of things. Like if people have this, when they come to somatic sessions with myself or my colleagues, Brita McKibben and Danielle Smith, they say they've developed so much more emotional capacity and so much more nervous system resilience and capacity and just so much more skillful um, self-regulation. So, so if that's you, you're exactly who I'm speaking to. Even if you don't actually physically do the exercises in the somatics classes, which Lots of people who have those um, kinds of illnesses, they, they don't. They just come for the contact nutrition. So you should just still just come to free week, show up from your bed with your camera off, just come and absorb the contact nutrition and see how it feels in your body. See how it feels for your body or your mind or your heart because we want ease and relief for you. We want that softening into a space of, total non-judgment and total welcome and deep understanding we genuinely want that for you so um, sign up for my newsletter and save some time for us during the week of september 17th to 23rd so you can come check out our guides and what we're up to there sign up for my newsletter at carmenspaniola.com c-a-r-m-e-n-s-p-a-g-n-o-l-a until next time take care